for yourself what I want for you. But when you do reciprocate my love by wanting for yourself everything that I want for you and thereby be loving me, don't you dare think for one moment that by reciprocating my love you're going to have me up on cloud nine. Who the heck do you think you are? A God who's dependent for even the tiniest little bit of his happiness or self-fulfillment on the likes of you. <laughs> He's not God anymore, that's for sure. You see, honey, you need me. But, I'm sorry, I don't need you. That's what comes of being God. You could no more increase my happiness one iota by reciprocating my love for you back to me than a mirror reflecting the rays of the noonday sun could make the sun one whit brighter. And if you don't reciprocate my love, if you tell me where to stuff it, don't you dare think that you're going to have me desolated, heartbroken, lonely. Who the blazes do you think you are? You see, I don't need your love for me. But you sure as God needs my love for you. And you have it all. You have it all. You see, I care. I care. I care for your authentic well-being. I want with all my power of wanting to bring it about. I care. But if you don't love me back, I don't care. If you don't love me back, I don't care. I don't need you. This is detachment. This is the mystery of God's love. That we go-getters, we who love only for what we can get, could never understand. But that's what his love is like. And when that poor little woman goes to Avignon, she knows, she's taught, how through the fulfillment of those twelve steps to adjust herself to let God put into her poor little heart for that husband of hers what's in his heart towards him. The love that's real but the love that's at the same time unaffected if it's not reciprocated. And how does God put that into our heart? Through contemplation. To letting her become magnetized to the magnetism of the magnet. To letting her, through contemplating him, absorb into her heart the kind of love that's God's. That's not demanding. That doesn't look for any created being. What brings contentment? What brings contentment in? God loves me. And I'm not going to stand up and say to God, 
what your love is not enough. My God, what a thing to say. Let me show you a little diagram. Now, I'm going to put bad grammar here, and I'm thinking about myself and that boss of mine that I have been living with now for over 15 years. God love him. And he does. How the hell he does, I don't know. (laughs) And I'm going to put just me... And I'm going to put just him. Awful bad grammar. But you put whoever you like there or don't like. Now. Ah. Him. Him. That'll do. How am I to bring about the, to become detached from him? So that it doesn't matter to me whether he, what the heck he thinks of me. Whether he thinks I'm a bum or whether he thinks I'm a, a sly scheming snake in the grass. How do I get detachment? There's only one way to become detached. And it's by becoming, can you guess? Can you read that word there? Become attached to God. And let God, through making you so happy over you being loved by Him, let the good fortune that is in that sway your heart. What the devil am I doing wanting to solicit muddy, 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 make-believe love? from a poor, limited human being, a fallen son of Adam, a fallen daughter of Eve, whoever. This doesn't mean we don't love other people. We do. But we love them the way God does. Want for them, with all our power of wanting, what God wants for them. And we'd even go to any lengths to bring it about if we could. But we don't do it to get from them what I tell myself I need to be happy. I have all and more of what I need to be happy in having God loving me. Until you can look at everything created and say, I don't need it. When God has decided to take it from you, for whatever reason, then you're the slave. You're the slave of whatever you can't detach from. You're enslaved. You're done. You're at the mercy of the whims and fancies and moods of an unpredictable fellow human being 
I wonder where she is now. I wonder what she's up to now. I wonder what the boss thinks of me now. I wonder... Your life is... Your life is absolutely... An agony. One agony, one crisis to another. This is the only way known to me to get rid of resentments. To have yourself so mesmerized, so filled with an unspeakable joy over being loved as I am loved by the living God. What does it matter? But someone else doesn't think I'm the greatest thing since penicillin. That's his problem. He doesn't know what he's missing. The business of getting rid of resentments is our biggest problem. In the last analysis, we have resentments because we think we cannot live without the good esteem of other people. And the truth is, we can. We don't need them. We don't need them. I know that that sounds insane to that in society out there. But that's because that unfortunate society out there has become totally dehumanized, de-Christianized, degenerate. Simple as that. And, as, and you and I are sucked into it, sucked into all its ways of thinking. Oh boy, you can't live without this. You've got to have it. You can't live without that. So on. It's endless. Absolutely endless. And unless you have quiet time, unless you shut it all out and become aware of the extent to which you've been sucked into it and thereby creating your own troubles, turn to God. Oh God, help me. I'm drowning. I'm being invaded, overwhelmed, suffocated, drowned in the madness, the insanity that surrounds me everywhere I look. Shut out the whole thing. Turn to God. That infinitely other, the infinitely other. My thoughts, he says, are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. My whole way of thinking about everything is not your way. And your way of thinking about everything is not my way. And that's God's nice diplomatic way of saying, one or other of us is nuts. Be careful who you decide is nuts. He'll have the last Quiet time. Quiet time. Let me finally read to you what Bill Wilson says in the 12 and 12 on page 100 about this thing I call quiet time. And in case you think that I'm proposing to you something that's my idea, just listen. There should be a direct linkage between self-examination, meditation, and prayer. Taken separately, these practices can bring a certain relief and benefit. But when they are interwoven, the result will always be 
an unshakable foundation for living. Now and then, listen, we'll be given a glimpse in his heavenly kingdom. And we will be comforted and assured that our own destiny in that realm will be secure for so long as we try, however falteringly, to find and to fulfill the will of our Father. Did you listen to that? Now and then we'll be given a glimpse, a little teaspoonful, a little foretaste of what's being experienced by God's blessed in their union with him in heaven. For their experience in the ecstasy and the rapture that flows out of God into them. That's what we're depriving ourselves of in not having our quiet time. And even if you only have a couple of seconds, 30 seconds of a glow, a lovely glow, when you let yourself be invaded by the realization of God loving you and what it means, you would have a foretaste of what's going on in heaven. And you will be secure in the knowledge that you're heading for where we're all heading for, that happy destiny. So long as we try, however falteringly, to find and to fulfill the will of our Creator, our Father. My last word. How do you get to know the will of God? People come along to me, how do I know the will of God? You get to know the will of God by knowing God. There is no other way to know the will of God. His will is be like me. Be selfless. Be good-natured. Be outgoing. Be forgiving. Be without resentment. Be accepting of people as they are, just like I am. My will is that you be like me. And let what I am like become more and more the obsession of all your thinking, of all your admiring, of all your longing to reproduce in your own self. There's never any problem about knowing the will of God. Nine times out of ten, it's what you don't want. That's it. I want to try to talk to you now about the eighth and ninth steps. We'll do the sixth and seventh steps tomorrow morning. Eighth step. Made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. The amend steps. When I first took the fourth and fifth steps, I made a list of the people that I could remember throughout my riotous, mad, crazy drinking life that I had harmed in many ways. And I said to myself, 
Now, I'm going to get these amends made as soon as possible and get them off my plate and then uh, start feeling good about myself. And I was told that is not the way to go about it. You don't dash off amend notes like the women dash off Christmas cards. You have to really, really think about it. You have to give it time, a lot of time, a lot of quiet time. The step itself indicates that. Made a list of all the persons we had had and became willing to make amends to them all. You're not making amends, however well chosen the words may be, if you really don't want to, if it's not what you want to do. And it takes time to want to forgive, to want to be forgiven, to acknowledge the need of being forgiven. That takes time. That takes a whole 180 degree turn towards all those people up here in our heads and deep down in our hearts. And that doesn't happen overnight. Became willing to make amends to them all. As I say, I made my list and I gradually did try to make amends. And I had a problem about one party at the very end of my list. And the way I saw it and could not get myself to see it any other way was. Sure, I had hurt them, and they had hurt me, and there was one devil of a bust-up between us. But I couldn't see that it was my move to make an amend. I considered they had amend to make to me. And I told my sponsor at the time the whole story. You see, he had told me what an amend has to consist in. He gave me one or two examples of what an amend is not. I apologize for what happened, but I still think you're a bastard. <laughs> That's not an amend. Even when what you're saying is the truth, it's still not an amend. Or, I apologize for what happened, but you were wrong and I was right. That's not an amend, even when what you're saying is true. Now, just what is an amend? This is an amend. I'm truly sorry for what happened. I hope you can forgive me. 
I was so wrong and you were right. If you're unable to forgive me, I understand. You're sincere. That's an amend. Any variation of that or any subtraction from that is not an amend. And that's what I said to my sponsor. You see, that's why I can't make this particular amend at the end of my list. Because the party involved admitted to me that they were wrong. That I was right. So how can I go saying I was wrong and I apologize if that's what an amend has to be? And that's when he said to me, listen, he said, I want to say three things to you. Number one, it's all right to be right. You never have to apologize ever for being right. Number two, it's all right to be wrong. To have gotten the wrong perception of it all, to have gotten the whole thing all wrong, and to have acted from out of a misunderstanding about the score. That's all right. It's all right to be right, it's all right to be wrong. Now listen to number three. It is never all right to be maniacally right, insistently right, intolerantly right, savagely, barbarously right about anything. That is always wrong. And if at any time you were right in that way, you were wrong. And you owe an amend. You see, you're not God. You're not infallible. You owe an amend. But I said, Jim, you weren't listening. They told me I was right. I've no more to say, he said. Take it to your quiet time. You owe that party an amend. And for what you have told me about the history of that whole business, if you do not make that amend, you will drink again. You're obsessed by it. You're bitter, sour, and still as angry today, years after, as you were the first time it happened. You owe an amend. And you'll never get rid of your anger and your resentment until you make it and make it from the heart. Now take it away out of my sight. I don't want to hear about it again. Take it to your quiet time and talk to you know who about it. And write letters to him about it. Don't bother me with it anymore. I want to tell you about it. It doesn't reflect very great credit on me, the whole history of that awful business in my life. But I'll tell you about it in case there might be anybody here who might be able to identify 
with my foolishness and self-destructiveness and maybe decide to make an amend that you don't want to make. It's a long story. I left home when I was 15 year old and home was a little village in the south of Ireland where everybody was a Catholic because there was nothing else to be. I left home at 15 because I had heard about something that attracted me very, very much and I decided to go across the Irish Sea to England to the north of England where there was a monastery of monks that lived a whole lifestyle that appealed to me very much. And they had a college, as we call it, prep school, and the students who would go to that prep school would go because they had intended to enter the monastery and become monks themselves when they graduate from that school. I was only 15 when I left home. I graduated eventually, I became a monk myself, and I was a monk for 30 years in that part. For a good number of those years, I was very happy. I had only one ambition in my whole life. How I formed this ambition, I don't know. I had heard as a child, going to school, to the nuns or the brothers, I don't know who, what it is that matters most in life. What is the answer to the question? What is it that constitutes the highest success that a human being can achieve? It's the biggest thing a human being can do in their, with their life. And they told us that the answer is in the good book. And all the guys and girls were answering all kinds of answers. And eventually they said, what's the answer to the question? What is the first and the greatest of all the commandments, of all the values? What is that top of the hierarchy of values? And the answer is there to love God. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with thy whole heart, thy whole mind, thy whole soul. Do that and you've succeeded in doing the biggest, biggest, biggest thing a human being can do. And for some reason that got, that stuck right down in my gut and it's right down in my gut to this very hour. And it was because I had that as an ambition to become a saint. There was going to be a saint, Bill Wilson. I was going to see to that. <laughs> so I entered this order. It was a very severe order. They did all kinds of weird and wonderful things. Get up in the middle of the night, sing the praises of God. What in the world God wanted these praises some for at two o'clock in the morning? I don't know. But it seemed an awful good idea to me at that time. They fasted three days a week, 
fasted all the days of Lent and Advent. They engaged in what they considered to be prayer and meditation. They tried to teach me how to pray. They didn't succeed. I only learned that in AA, along with a whole lot of other things. But I was happy, being miserable. <laughs> we worked hard in the fields, studied. And then after I was five years, I was on top of being a monk, I was ordained a priest. What is the difference? I'll tell you sometime, and I have plenty more time for that now. And I, uh, five years after I was ordained a priest, that is in 1950, they packed me off to Rome five years after the Second World War ended in Europe, which ended in 1945, to study all kinds of highfalutin things in a very prestigious Roman university right under the Pope's nose. All kinds of highfalutin stuff that slobs like you wouldn't understand at all. And I enjoyed it immensely. But it's in Rome but I started to drink. I became intoxicated not only with scholarship, but intoxicated, period. I had never drunk alcoholic liquor in my entire life before. And here I was, living in the head monastery of the order that I belonged to. And in that monastery there in Rome, oh, there was over 200 monks. Many, Some of them... Italians and residents, they're there all the time. And then guys like myself from all over the world, belonging to the same order, who came there to live there to go to the various universities to get degrees that they would come back to their own monasteries with and put to the kind of use they were intended for. Every day, twice a day, we had whatever meal there was going to be in the big dining hall, call it a refectory. And I found myself between two of these big long tables. I was always in the same place, with the same guys either side of me, according to your seniority. And all down the table, there were these big flagons of wine. And they were positioned one between each two monks. Huge thing. You weren't supposed to drink the whole thing. It's just like when you put a pitcher of water out, uh, you're not supposed to drink the whole pitcher, but anyway, that was the way it was done. Well, <laughs> you know what happened. I found myself twice a day with two enormous pitchers of wine literally within arm's reach of me. One supposed to be between me and the guy this side of me, the other between this guy and the guy the far side of him. The guy this side of me only used that much in the bottom of the mug out of that picture. The guy this side of me never took any at all. He was weird. <laughs> Dangerous guy. <laughs> and the guy the far side of him only took that much. Now I want to tell you that at the end of each of these meals, twice a day, those two pitchers were empty. And I was as high as a kite. <laughs> I experienced 
what happens when you get drunk. No one ever told me what happens. Nobody. I, I gloried in it. And that was the way I lived for three years in that place. I was blind drunk twice a day. I'd sleep it off in the middle of the day with siesta, and I'd sleep it off at night. The English-speaking crowd among us, like Americans, Irish, Englands, Australians, Canadians, God knows who, we formed a little group of our own within the big community. And we had money sent to us from the monastery back home, and uh, that was to use for deep research work at the university. But we didn't need it all for that purpose, don't you understand? And so we used to lay in what it takes to cheer ourselves up. You know, we were far from home. <laughs> and they made my room. You don't call it a room in a monastery. It's called a cell. Some of you may have some experience of that. <laughs> they made my cell the bar. And I had shelves in there. And I had bottles and bottles and bottles of booze. Discreetly covered by a blanket and of crowds of glasses, and I had to have the glasses at the ready whenever a party was declared. And the party was always... And we, we, co we co-opted one single Italian into our group. His parents owned a winery outside of Rome. And we lived to see the day where this enormous barrel of wine was brought up the back stairs in the middle of the night and along the cloister and into my cell and set up on a trestle with a faucet. I was all set up for my honeymoon with booze. Three years, never sober for a single day. I wrote my doctorate dissertation entirely under the influence of alcohol. A masterpiece. <laughs> So all the professors said. I read it sometimes when I want to give myself a good laugh. I don't understand a word of it. Which tells me something about those professors. Anyway, that was my life. I came home. Now I want to tell you that during those years in Rome, in that university, Things were going on that had an immense effect on the whole Catholic Church quite a number of years later. In those days, the scholars in the church, theologians, scripture scholars, all kinds of people, were digging up the sources and getting in touch with what you might call primitive Christianity. The Christianity that came from the lips of the founder of Christianity himself and was proclaimed by the first apostles and disciples. And all kinds of rediscoveries were being made. All kinds of stuff that had always been sort of on the books but had never been preached for centuries and above all had never been lived by for centuries. And we knew 
in the universities in those days. But this was all going to surface one of these fine days. And the whole church would become totally changed. Well, as some of you know, that did happen years later. And that's what the Second Vatican Council was, if you ever heard of such a thing. But that was a council that was called to reform the church, to renew it, to make it more like what it was always supposed to be like, and to get rid of all kinds of accretions that had accumulated through the centuries that weren't part of Christianity at all. Well, I was ahead of the game and knew about all this. When I came back anyway to my monastery, I wanted to teach. And so, I was full of all what was called the new scholarship. And I did something that was absolutely unthinkable. But I did it with malice aforethought, with cool, calm awareness of what it was going to lead to. <coughs> I deliberately organized a rebellion in the monastery in the north of England. I was a professor, duly accredited, triple doctor, teaching the young men who would be the future priests of the order. And I introduced them to all this new scholarship. I introduced them to all this stuff which meant that all sorts of elements in the ways of living, both in the monastery and in the whole church as a whole, had to be gotten rid of. And a whole new way of doing everything had to evolve. And it had its effect on all areas of life in the monastery. I told those youngsters, now, we're going to get these old footy-duddies to hell out of here. And things are going to go on here the way God intends. You understand? I said, now you close ranks. I'll supply you guys with the bullets. And you do what I'm telling you to do. And we'll prevail. And life will be more what it's supposed to be like around here. Well, it affected life, as I say, in all kinds of ways. Like, for instance, there was a way for singing the praises of God that came down from the Middle Ages, the early Middle Ages, and was a pain in the neck. If you can imagine what happened when I taught them what I called the new way of doing it all. If you can imagine what it was like in a, an abbey church, two o'clock in the morning, and this crowd of strong male voices lifting up the psalm, psalmody, but one crowd singing it to one tune and rhythm, and another crowd singing it to a totally different tune and totally different rhythm, and one crowd trying to outshout the other. You talk about cacophony. <laughs> it was bad on the nerves. Really bad. And I kept telling them, don't give in. We have them on the run. We're getting on their nerves. They'll retreat. They'll retreat. Keep at it. 
You see, we reassembled in the, in, in the monastery church to sing the praises of God four or five more times throughout the day. So nerves began to be very badly frayed. And everybody knew who was at the back of all this. Eventually, the inevitable happened. The big brass came in on top of us, unannounced. Superior General, the provincial as he's called, who is the boss of a whole country, with all the monasteries in that country. The real big brass arrived. I was sent for. And the superior of the monastery who had sent me to Rome was there also. I walked into the office I was told to appear in. And the guy who was the superior of the monastery kept his head down, wouldn't look at me. And he said, the worst day's job I ever did was send you to Rome to study. All it has done for you is it has made you an alcoholic. Did you hear that dirty, filthy word? I have forgot to tell you that when I came back to my own monastery from Rome, I became a closet drinker. And I changed from wine to whiskey. And if you want to know from me how a monk living in a monastery would have our poverty with all his comings and goings under the uh, jurisdiction of the superior to a vow of obedience. How he comes to have a constant supply of good Scotch whiskey. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> it can be done. God takes care of his own. <laughs> And here's this guy now telling me that all it did for you, sending you to Rome, was make you an alcoholic. Your entire conduct of the trust that was put into you, put on you, has been absolutely appalling. You've been blind drunk in class. You've scandalized the young men. This is the first time I ever heard in my life that the four-letter word scandalized young men. And I want you to know that at this moment, your professorship is terminated. And we will see to it that you will never, ever again, under any circumstances, occupy a chair of philosophy, theology, canon law, scripture, or anything else, anywhere in the entire Catholic Church. You may go. I staggered out of there. And my whole world that I had worked for, lived for, was shattered beyond all hope of ever being repaired or forgiven. I was reduced in the ranks. I was required to do the kind of chores that you needed no brains whatever for doing. But I considered an insult to my intelligence. Those kind of monks used to leave their monastery 
to go to parishes all over the country to give what used to be called in those days parish missions or parish retreats. A monk and maybe another one along with him would go to a certain parish anywhere the diocese, in a diocese, all over the place, and sort of take over that parish for a week, two weeks, three weeks. And in those days, the people, the good people, would flock into the church every night for two weeks or three weeks to listen to the man of God speak in God's mind and God's heart to them. The idea was that these monks were wrapped up with God in prayer, contemplation, like Moses on top of Mount Sinai. And as he would come down from the mountain to speak to God's people in the plains, they would go out from their monastery to speak to God's people, God's mind and God's heart. That's the kind of job I was reduced to. I also had to do a whole lot of talking to nuns and people like that and other monks in other monasteries, giving them retreats. And all the time, I was filled with bitterness. Filled with bitterness. After they had fired me, I was ordered to go down to their monastery outside of London where the big brass assembled behind locked doors to decide how to dispose of the body after they had fired me, what to do with them. And I walked up and down the cloisters of that monastery for ten days, over a week, while they were behind, in conclave, behind this locked door, talking about me and what to do with me. And eventually the judgment was handed down. Banishment to the boondocks for an indefinite period. They had a monastery in South Wales on a promontory stretching out into the earth. The last outpost of the British Empire. Like a lighthouse. And I was to go there and there wasn't a pub within a hundred miles of it. I was to go there to cool my heels for an indefinite period. I remember sitting on the side of a bed in one of the rooms in that monastery in London, outside of London. The door was open and I had my belongings just in a row, roped. That's all the size of them. A couple of books. When I came home from Rome, I had a whole vast library to accompany me through life to become a great professor. All gone. And as I sat there waiting for the taxi to come to the monastery front door to take me down to the railroad station, to take me off to Devil's Island, one of the monks who had been sitting in judgment on me behind the locked door, passed outside, saw me, did a double take, made a U-turn, came in and sat down beside me. Now this, I'm not being facetious now, this was a good, holy, holy, ascetic monk, man of God. He sat down beside me and he said, my, day, my name in those days was Paul. 
When you become a monk, you're given a new name. Well, Paul, he said, so it's all over. Huh? I'd like you to tell me just exactly what happened up there. You'd like me to tell you now, wouldn't you? You've sat in judgment on me. You've passed judgment on me. You've condemned me, fired me, liquidated me, obliterated me. And now you want to know my side of it after you've done that. That's the way things were. The old Spanish Inquisition way of doing things. That's the kind of thing I was fighting. That's the way things are not now since Vatican II. At long last, we have heard of a thing called due process. They have. It's for real. I see, I said. You want to know now. When you have done the dirty on me. Hearing just one side of it. Well, I'll tell you, I said. And I hope it haunts you to the grave. And I told him. Exactly what I had said, what I had done, why I had done it. And he listened, and he said, I guessed it was something like that, yes. Sure, you, of course you were right. You were, of course, you're an intelligent, you're no fool. You were right, of course you were. But I want to tell you something, Paul. You won't be able to make sense out of it now. But long years after I'm dead and gone, I pray to God in heaven for you that you'll see the sense of what you won't see sense in now. We could never accept it. Never, never, ever. Not because it wasn't right. It was right. But the reason we could never accept it is because it was you that was right. And when he said that to me, I can't tell you what happened inside me here. But I just exploded. I just simply went berserk. And I roared and screamed like a wounded bull in its death agony. I said, you dirty, rotten, low-down hypocrite. You phony. You parade through life like a man of God. And all your ilk here is doing the same thing, all you old fuddy-duddies. But when someone stands up for, what, for what's right, if there's a wrong guy who stands up for it, for what God wants, then the heck with what God wants. Old age must be preserved, tradition preserved and honored, and what's right, and the young man must go to the wall. You dirty, dirty dog, I said. Get out of my life, and you know where you can stuff South Wales. And I stormed out of there, and I never stopped moving until I ended up in San Diego, California, where I got someone 
two, two. Befuddle a bishop, the bishop of San Diego, into thinking that if he accepted this specimen to be a priest of his diocese with his vows as a monk annulled, just a diocesan priest, he would be accepting a prize. <laughs> he fell for it. <laughs> and I came out here in 1968, 28 years ago, San Diego, and I brought my problem with me. I was a drunk. And for seven more years, I drank and cried in my beer. And I was a kind of maudlin drunk that would buttonhole you if you were fool enough to let me any hour of the day or night and start telling you the way those dirty, rotten, low-down bastards had treated me. A brilliant man, a man of infinite promise and competence and know-how. And they fired me for being right on their own admission. Can you believe it? And I went on and on and on. I wouldn't like to tell you, try to tell you, the kinds of things I did in my loneliness and frustration, bitterness and anger. A strange man in a strange land had to find out what I was missing. I owed it to myself to console myself, don't you understand? I don't know how to tell you, gentlemen, what it's like. Stand at the altar every day of your life, believing, believing, that what you do when you stand there and do your priestly thing, your face to face, eyeball to eyeball, with a loving God, that you made great, great solemn promises to. To be obedient, to be poor, to own no money, no property, no luxuries of your own, and to be chaste. To make him and him alone the object of all your heart's loss. Stand there coming from the pigsty where you were the night before still sinking to high heaven, knowing you had let him down. You had broken every, every promise you ever made to him. Why didn't I, why didn't I leave the job altogether? I don't know. All I know is, I always intended to get this whole thing cleaned up. Somehow, God knows how, someday. But not today, not today, because you see, I was angry, justifiably angry, and I had to smother it somehow, compensate for it somehow, and I did, the only way I knew how to, for seven more years. I staggered into AA. After three more years, I took my fourth step 
made my list of the names that to be made with this one at the bottom of the list. And I talked to my sponsor. And I told him the story I just told you. And he said to me, you have got to make that amends. But I was in the right. I'm just listening. They themselves said I was in the right. I don't care. It's all right to be right. It's all right to be wrong. But it's never all right to be maniacally, diabolically, savagely, insanely, intolerantly right. That is never right. That is always wrong. And you owe an amend. You weren't listening, Jim. <laughs> My situation is different. <laughs> Take it to your quiet time. I cried. My quiet time. Cried in bed at night. I was sober now. Very lonely. Very, very frustrated. God help me to accept the things I cannot change. Work some miracle. Give me back what I have a right to, what I earned. I'm here to tell you tonight that I need that amend. I wanted to. I wanted to. I did what Jim said. Talk to him about it. Look into his eyes. Look down into his heart. You talk about yourself being a priest. You talk about the guy you're in the employ of being the high priest, the HP, JP, JC. Yeah, the high priest. He got a raw deal at the end. He got a raw deal at the end. And is your HP? Can you drink? He says and says to you of the chalice he drank of. Can you? He can make you want to, you know. Because what he's telling you is forgive. Forget. Really forgive. I forgive utterly unforgivable. Can you really compare your little, little tragedy? But I accepted and forgave. And when I did, I have known a joy that's not of this world. You know what you're doing yourself out of? Would you like to be associated with me in my finest hour? Do what I did when I did the greatest thing that even God could think of.
I sat down and I wrote that letter because I wanted to. I wanted to because I wanted to get rid of the stink, the pain, the agony. I wanted peace of soul. I wanted to be heroic. To rise to the heights of Christ-like, God-like nobility. If he could empower me to do such a thing. To be as great, as magnanimous as he is. I wrote the letter. Four lines. I was wrong. I was terribly wrong. And I meant it. I was wrong. I was wrong. I was wrong. <laughs> Do I need to prove to you that I was? Or have I bamboozled you into thinking I was? Listen here. Since when was it right that the most honorable, noble, humble, holy men on the face of this earth should take in among themselves and make one of themselves a little brat and a nobody from the bogs of Ireland. Give him, share with him all that they have. Introduce him to scholarship. Introduce him to a magnificent library. Show him how to use a library that houses the culture of the greatest tradition on the face of the earth. Show him how to appreciate artistry, beauty, poetry, literature. How to appreciate the depths and the wonders of philosophy, theology, of all kinds. Send him off to the most prestigious university in Rome. Well, one of my classmates was a guy called Karl Wachia. You've all heard of him. His name today is John Paul II. I didn't know the so-and-so. He didn't know me either. Thank God. But we were classmates. Imbibing the same scholarship. And having given me literally all they have to give, I come back from there and use my scholarship as a weapon to show them up in front of the young, to organize a rebellion, to look down on them and scorn them. I want to get them out of their places of prestige. Since when was this the right way to do things? Is this right? Of course what he said to me was true. Because it was you that was right. You couldn't possibly go along with it. To make a brass, an upstart, a disturber of the peace, the champion that all was to look to and follow and look down on those who had burdened, had borne the burdens of the years and the heat. Ah, that was wrong. No God would want things done that way. Even I could see it. And I do see it. And I thank God I see it. I'd never have seen it. But for my quiet time. But that man taught me how to do it. I wrote that letter. I don't think I ever told you that I'm a loner. I have no family. They're all dead and gone. I live in a vacuum. And 
the first time I decided to go back to England for a vacation from San Diego. I decided to go to the village in the north of England outside of which that monastery was located. I, lived there. I knew some of the people in the village. And I went back there and I uh, checked into the little hotel on Main Street. I hadn't told anyone I was coming or anything at all about it. All I was going to do was visit some old friends in the village. The only friends I had. And I hadn't gotten into bed after traveling over 6,000 miles. And the phone beside the bed rang. And it was the boss man up in the monastery. Bad news traveled off at fast. <laughs> and his first words in the world, what the hell are you doing down there? You get yourself up here where you belong and stop sulking. Come up here. First thing in the morning. Come home. There's no way I can tell you what that reception was like. All I know is they're lovely men. My brother. To whom I owe everything I have and everything I have. The prodigal son had nothing on me coming back. Nothing. It was embarrassing. All I know, all I, I know, guys, is this. Wherever there's reconciliation, wherever there's saying I'm sorry, even if the other one was right and you were wrong, and you were right too. Even if you were right and the other one was Whatever. Stay sorry. Stop, stop going around with an air of injured innocence. Because wherever there's reconciliation, God is there. God is there. And he is nowhere else. Where does forgiveness, forgiveness sought, forgiveness given, with humility, with joy. God is there. You know that a God you know it. You know a little more of what God is like when you're forgiven. Ask to be forgiven. Even when it's the other the other one should be saying, Will you forgive us? That's all I want to say to you. I told you yesterday <clears throat> that this morning I would talk about steps six and seven. Step six. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these is it defects of character or shortcomings, whatever. Huh? Defects. And seven humbly asked him to do so. We're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. What does that mean? What does it mean? We're entirely ready to have someone else do something. What in the world does that mean? Every single one of the other steps 
tells me to do something. Cut and dried and definite and concrete. And I can even point to a moment of time when I can say, well, now I've done that. But this sixth step, it doesn't tell me to do anything. It tells me to be ready for someone else to do something. In fact, to be entirely ready. What in the world is that supposed to mean? There's an awful vagueness about it. Now, when there's a complete vagueness about what being, something we've been asked to do, there's an awful danger we'll never get around to doing it. That we won't even know whether we've done it or whether we haven't. And, of course, that suits us just fine, doesn't it? <laughs> well, now I want to make one of my profound statements. And if you're taking notes, write this down. Step six follows steps four and five. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> this period following after the business of getting in touch with the real, real me and sharing this real, real me that I've gotten in touch with with one other human being. Life is never the same after you've done that, for real. You never get over the shock of being introduced to this total stranger, yourself, your real self. It's always a shock. The period that follows after doing that in the whole recovery process <clears throat> is what I call the incubation period. When the new you is coming into existence, is being brought into existence. You don't bring the new you into existence. <laughs> That's a total impossibility. You don't bring you into existence. 